chapter 5. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has, a great, has great power or is strong, has great strength as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours or passions like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave grain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whatever, excuse me, that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. May the Lord be blessed by the reading of his word. I have known this passage for quite a while. You have known this passage for quite a while. But to be honest, I've never been really comfortable with how my understanding of it was or how I have been taught about it. I have listened to many sermons. I have read many books. And I just always left with an odd feeling that I just didn't understand what this passage really meant. There are some things in it that are controversial. There are some things in it that just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it just doesn't, there are just some contradictory statements or things that just don't seem to go along with the next sentence. And for that reason, we have a lot of interpretations. And because of it, we have things that are instituted in church that either may be right or may not be right. I'm here to give you an alternative perspective. What else did you expect? No. Uh, <laughs> no, really, to give you an alternative perspective, not to say that what has been practiced here has been wrong, but I'm here to understand, to understand along with you that there has been more of a uh, focus that is rather narrow and then I'd like to be able to expand this passage to hopefully expand your understanding of what it means and how important it is to us as individuals and to us as a congregation, to us as a church. There are some words that are being used that there are some meanings that are ambiguous. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that there's multiple meanings for the words that are being used and translations have chosen these words and sometimes we look at them on face value and we give it a, de a narrow definition where the Bible opens up that definition for us. I'm going to do that today with you as I have had to do for myself as I have 
come to a place now that where the understanding that I have gotten, not from my tremendous study and my intelligence, but by digging, looking for other perspectives that seemed to make sense to me as I was looking at this. And thankfully so, with the internet the way that it is, I have found research papers, I have heard pastors, I have heard scholars, I have read their work. I have even read uh, Greek teachers who have looked at these words and said, well, maybe that's not the right perspective, or maybe that's not exactly what is being said here. This is James writing to this church, his church, and to these, those who have seemed to have the diaspora, those who have been scattered. Context is everything. How words are used, how words are used in other places, Today we're going to look at some, pa- some passages, some places where words that are used that I hope shed light on what I think the meaning is, which then m- makes a whole lot of sense where this all fits in. For example, is there anyone among you sick? That never just fit with me. I never, it never fit. It just seemed like how with everything else that follows and everything else has been said, how, how does that fit? Now, how some interpret that to mean that when James was writing this, he was writing this book, this letter, and he seems to write in, in flowing sentences. Uh, it's a book of, uh, they use it as a book of wisdom. Many people who've read this book, who teach this book say, wow, you know, James beats the daylights out of us by telling us what we're supposed to do. And it feels like he slaps us around. But I find it, from the perspective as we look at this, it, it does, it's challenging, it, it convicts us, it, it, it changes hopefully the way that we look at things and how we deal with things and how we're supposed to respond to things. But James is writing this as an encouragement and as a challenge to these people in the church. And what is going on here is what takes place at the beginning of the book And what is going on at the end of the book? So let's take a look at the beginning, because I think context makes a whole lot of sense. Right in the very beginning is verse 2, which has always been problematic for me. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Counting it joy goes against my nature, my personality. My Italian blood. Though I understand where it comes from, and though I understand what the Lord wants for me, it is always, I laugh when I read this, and I'm very convicted, because I know that my, my, my nature, my passions, my default, as you've heard me say for two and a half years, has not been the place where the Lord would want me to be at times. I'm so thankful that I respond in ways that is pleasing to the Lord, that fit to what the Bible teaches, how a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ should respond. And I go, wow, I, I have grown. People will say something to me, and I go, wow. You know, right now, for me, there is no other way to respond but this way, which is great because I wouldn't have done that before unless the Lord changed me. 
But listen to, listen to what the theme of these verses are. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, mature in your faith, lacking nothing. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously with all, without a reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of sea that is driven, tossed, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he, is willing, he, he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, man, unstable in all of his ways. Verse 12, blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial. Do you feel a theme here? Trials. Now again, the Bible, and especially the New Testament perspective of what church is and what it is to be a Christian, does not give you that flowery, victorious perspective that I have gone on and on about when, we've, when I've been here and talked about 2 Corinthians and when we looked at the Gospel of John, that it is not about victorious, about these people who are looking prosperous and healthy and whole and glorious and radiant because of God's prosperity and health in their life. But one, this book, this book was written, this could be and very much is the very first book that is written in the New Testament. The earliest New Testament writing is the gospel, is the book of James, the letter of James. And even then, in the 40s, we see these trials, we see these struggles of various kinds from outside. And as, we, as you read the book of James, things that are going on inside, brothers and sisters are not treating each other as if they should. There, there are those who have and those who have not. There are those who have problems with their tongue. There are those who have problems with other things in their life. There are, there are people who are being criticized. There is severe persecution at times going on in ridicule, going on within the church and going on outside. And did you read when we read, did you hear the words of the Lord of the psalmist what we've read in Psalm 31 about that he is being tormented? That he is, his name is a joke. People are laughing at him. Of his defense of the Lord. Of his stature. Of his walking with the Lord. And walking with Yahweh. And finding out that people are mocking him. And joking about him. And, and doesn't seem to have a whole bunch of friends. This is what is going on in the book of James. This is what's going on through the New Testament. As we've, we've seen. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, oh, we hate tests, he will receive the crown of life. And then let's turn from there and turn to chapter 5. Now, after going through warning against worldliness and warning to the rich and faith without works and taming your tongue and partiality uh, and the sin of partiality and, and uh, all those things that are going on through here. Chapter 5, verse 7, to me, that summarizes where he's been, 
what he started out to be talking about in, in, the, in the beginning of chapter 1, and now he brings the subject up again. Verse 7 of chapter 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives its, the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establishing your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You see, he brings that issue up again, that subject of steadfastness in trials, in suffering. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate, is merciful. You see, you remember that Job was put to a test by the Lord himself. And he stood the test, but he wasn't radiant. He found terrible counsel from his friends. He started arguing with God. And then at the end, he realizes his theology comes back to him again. He understands who God is. After God explains himself again to him, what we see here. Is what, he, what the James is now using Job as an example of suffering. Why? Because the theme of the book is what to do and how to navigate through a life of suffering. How should we respond? Notice James, before we even get to our passage, because it's so important to understand our passage. He says, be patient, therefore. In light of everything I've said, be patient, Brothers, sisters, what until the parousia, until the coming of the Lord, a theological doctrine that you need to understand and that you need to establish in your heart and you need to understand totally what the Bible teaches about that because by you knowing that the coming of the Lord is at hand, the judge is at the door, the Lord is going to return, he says, it may stink now. The oven, it may be on and it may be hot, but you know what? It's going to end someday. It is not going to be forever like this. Jesus is going to return. So whether he comes now or he comes later, that's our hope. That's what he says, as you've heard somebody say, about keeping your compass facing north. James is saying the same thing as the Bible tells us. It's all about our teaching. It's all about our doctrine, but also about our intimacy with God. Because it can't be only head. It's got to be heart. You've got to believe it. You've got to know it and believe it. You just can't be an egghead and just think it. That's where James says, if you don't have works, along with your faith, it's dead. So, so what is this about? I think this, is, this book, this 
story, this epistle, James is writing to people who are suffering. And how to act, and how to respond, and how not to. But do this instead when we find ourselves suffering from all kinds of suffering. There, I think, is what leads us into this passage to give us an understanding of what some of these terms mean. Verse 13, is any among you suffering? Wow, fits the topic perfectly to me now, doesn't it? Makes sense. Are any of you suffering? Some people think that James is writing, and as I started saying, about this flowing, he writes really well, he takes longer sentences, and then he seems to run out of space and just do a brain dump. Now, I'm not saying that that's not seen in other places in the Bible, but I don't think that's the case here. I don't think this is a brain dump by James because he's run out of papyri. He's saying, is anyone among you, are you suffering out there? Are you really under turmoil, in turmoil, from inside, from outside, regardless? What is the thing we should do? Pray. That's how we're supposed to do that. Which is, for some of you, Maybe sometimes for some of us, that seems to be the place to go, thank God. But for some of us, it is worry, it is complaining, it is grumbling, it is anger, it is fists, it is, you know, violence, it is withdrawal. There's all kinds of ways we manifest this where James is saying, pray, let's pray, let him pray. And then he says on the other side, is anyone cheerful? Are there people, if, if that's what your, 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 uh, the atmosphere or your emotion is, he says then that should be praise. Sing a song, sing a psalm. Remember, you know, when, when uh, they were in prison in the book of Acts, what did they do when they were in prayer in the jail? Under persecution, they started singing. James is saying, where are you at this point? Then he goes to this point in this next verse, and he says, is any among you sick? Now, why would he say, is any among you sick? Now, yes, you could be suffering. Sickness is a suffering. But... The word here has a kind of, I think, more multiple meanings. Let's, let me give you some, some uh, verses that will point you to that. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 6. This is the same exact word. Okay, Romans 5. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, okay, while we were still weak, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 3, 
For God has done for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. Chapter 14 of book of Romans. As for the one who is weak in faith. Verse 21. It is good of chapter 14 of book of Romans. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble or become weak in their faith. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Should be still pretty warm. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. 29, verse 29. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Okay, I pressed a point there. What may this word be interpreted as well? It may mean sick, but it may not necessarily only mean physical sickness. It may, may mean spiritual sickness, that you're weak in your faith. If you're suffering, that may cause you to be weak in your faith. I know that's not unknown to you because it happens to all of us. So what, so what James is saying is any of you, anyone among you, weak or feeble, yes, in, in, in the usage of this word, there are, there are many occasions where it is used to mean physically sick. But predominantly, by the use in, in the rest of the New Testament, the majority of the times and ways this is used is to mean feebleness or weariness or weakness. Even the lexicons that I've looked at and other people have looked at, the primary meaning is not physical sickness, it is weariness and weakness and being beat up and put down. So to me this makes sense if you interpret this word sickness, not only physically sick, which may be it, but I think if we broaden the understanding of sickness, who, I'm not, not sickness, but weakness, who among you, is anyone among you weak? And the answer is, uh-huh. Why? Because they're tired of suffering. They're getting beat up and life is tough and stuff and being in the church. Who wants to be in a church like that? And what's going on? And how does your faith grow when you have all this dissension going on? And not only that, this is a place supposed to be heaven on earth. And then we go out there and we find no help whatsoever. In fact, we find adversaries. You don't think your faith is going to be weak? Which is sick, in a sense. When you're sick, you're weak. So I think we've got this myopic view of the word, which is translated like that everywhere. And it's interesting how the gyrations that people go through to try to make sick work 
physical sickness work in this passage? Because what's going to follow makes no sense to me about physical sickness. If any of you is sick, he says, let them call the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Now, many people say that this is sure and fast, which I don't agree with. Is that they say it's sure and fast that call the elders to the church because this is a severe sickness. And the person can't go to the elders, so the elders need to go to them and pray over them because they must be laid out in bed somewhere. Now, I think that's, I think, yes, that could be. But I don't need, I don't need to wait. I don't think the Bible's teaching us, and I don't think James is waiting for someone to be severely sick for the elders to be called. And you can, we pray over people, meaning that we are surrounding them with prayer rather than a posture or a position of one being higher than the other. I just don't find that conclusive, and there's nothing in the term that talks about severity of illness. If you see it, you can tell me, but in the Greek, nowhere. I just don't see severity of illness. He says, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, this is the clincher. And the prayer of faith will, 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 I'm stuck, will save. The one who is sick. Now, folks, we prayed for Rosemary. Yes. What happened? It's not to say that it's, and I don't want to say that what is going on in the church and what we've done here is not a ministry and it's not to continue. Please don't read it that way. But I think it's expanding. I think it should expand to our understanding that this means all of us at different times of our life. We don't need to wait for a tumor. We don't need to wait for cancer. We don't need to wait for any calamity, physical malady, but a spiritual sickness. And a prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise them up. It happens, but it doesn't always happen. How can this writer, James, be so sure, have such assurance that God will save them and will raise them up, which are terms that, again, don't sound like somebody who is sick, but it sounds like somebody who's having a spiritual problem, because the word therefore save is the word therefore save. It's not, I mean, how do you save somebody who's sick? It doesn't fit. Sickness and saving somebody doesn't go hand in hand with me. Being someone restored, someone brought back to health, that makes sense. I can understand that. But someone saying it says that they will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise them up are really words that are just, and I use the term loosely, pregnant with meaning. The word save is sozo, which used most times in the Bible, talks about salvation. And the word to raise up is the word, to, the word that we use many times that is used throughout the New Testament is to the resurrection, raising up. Paul uses it predominantly. 
in the writings about this word of being raised up. But it all talks about being awakened, being roused. I'm not saying that that's not words that can't be used in some physical way. But to me, it makes more sense to talk about a person who is under suffering, is having a very difficult time, and is on the line sometimes of doing something that's completely wrong because they're tired of waiting for the Lord. They can't stand being beat up. They're going to take measures in their own hand, or they've been listening to Oprah, or listening to these idiots out there, and listening to other people who don't know what theology is all about, doesn't know what the Bible is saying, doesn't even care. When you're in hurting, you'll look for anybody who will look you in the eyes and hug you. So I say, this is a prayer of faith by these elders. Because really, if you're talking about the gift of healing, it wasn't in my job description. I don't know, John never told me, Jeff never told me, Bob never told me that they had the gift of healing. It sounds here that there's a special group of people called the elders who have this power of being able to heal, this gift of healing. And it's not in the job description. What's happened from this interpretation is that even John Calvin has said that it's more for the apostolic age but ended after the apostles. But Roman Catholicism now has taken this apostle perspective and now gives it as a sacrament of the church called, now the word anointing is another term for unction. And what do they say? As a good Catholic, I had to remember the sacraments of the church. And what is it? Extreme unction. Anointing those who are getting ready to go to the beyond. And I don't see that here anywhere. And, but the next phrase really is more boggling. If, if, conditional, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What? We're talking about sickness. What does forgiveness of sins have to do about this? I mean, does every sin produce sickness? And is every sickness from sin? Yes, ultimately, it's Genesis 3. Ultimately, it is sin. It results from sin. It is the consequence of sin. But not every sin that you and I commit brings us sickness. There are people who do things, have sinful patterns in your life and sinful behavior in your life that does lead to sickness. But this is a blanket statement to anyone who is sick. And if they have committed a sin, they'll be forgiven. How does healing somebody and forgiveness go hand in hand? They're just incongruent. In my book, I've always struggled with this. Because it always was my being told that I had, they, they were only talking about sick people. But now I'm saying it's sick people, spiritually sick. Because the verse 15, and the prayer of the faith, notice the prayer, it's about prayer. This is about prayer. This chapter, this book is about prayer. How to go through suffering? Pray. 
Go to the elders. Why? Because these are the people, as the writer of Hebrews says, these are the overseers of your life and your soul. Don't make their job miserable. Follow them. Follow their leadership because they are been given the by the great shepherd and being called the under-shepherds. They have been given the custody of your souls. They care about you. So the, the, the purpose of being an elder is to be in the ministry of prayer. Remember in the book of Acts, chapter 6, where it looks like in chapter 6 we see the beginning of the diaconate serving the tables? What do they say? They're saying, we, we need to find men who are going to serve with the tables because what are we supposed to be devoting our time into? Studying the word and prayer. Which I say, this is who we are as elders. This is our job. You should be coming to us. And asking for prayer, not just for sickness, but when you find yourself beaten up. Because the elders are the ones who are supposed to be spiritually mature. That's why you need to choose them wisely. These are the people that you have trust in. That's why you need to choose them wisely. These are the people that you believe have confidentiality and are going to end it. These are the people that realize that there's no two ways out of a lake. In a lake, there may be a stream in, but there can't be a stream out. So when information goes in, it stays. That's the kind of people elders are supposed to be. This is how we're supposed to be called the overseers of your faith. So the word here, we'll save those who are sick, verse 15. That's not the same word, which is interesting. It's not the same word being used for sick in chapter 14. Let's turn to the only other occasion that this word is used in the New Testament to read what it says. Hebrews chapter 12. Isn't this interesting? I think so. Verse 3 of chapter 12. I'm going to read a passage going down to verse 13. And the title of this section in my Bible is what? Do not grow weary. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow, not sick, but weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. God allows these tests to go on in our life so that we are sanctified. I read a story once of a man went to the pastor and he says, she says, Pastor, I'm in a difficult marriage. He says, Lady, there is no Nothing else but a difficult marriage. She goes, why? It's because God wants you to be sanctified. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. 
God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have heard earthly fathers who disciplined us and and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful, but rather, painful rather than pleasant. But later he yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your droopy hands and strengthen your weak hands knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may be put out of joint may not be put out of joint but what rather be healed you see they're using a physical term to talk about a spiritual condition and that's what i believe and others believe strongly That this is what this is talking about. This is talking about people who are struggling and their faith is sick, not physically sick. And it's the prayer of the elders who then takes them under their wings and prays for them and their faith. But what may happen along the way? Little Jimmy may have already got so doggone angry at God and may have been so weakened that he went and did whatever he wanted to do, Sarah, you laugh, and do whatever you wanted to do, and I have sinned against God. And he says, in your weakness, if you have sinned, praying with the elders, bringing the perspective back to you, he says, then if you committed sins, you'll be forgiven. Does that make sense? A whole lot of sense to me. I don't need to sidestep. I don't need to jump over this. I don't need to tiptoe. It's obvious to me. And this is so refreshing for me because it's been a struggling passage for years. Is it the only way? No. If you don't like it, believe what you want to believe. Really. There are people out there that don't necessarily look at it the same way. Don't don't discount it, but see, it's more about physical sickness. Now there's a word here, correct? Verse 16, therefore. Now what's therefore, therefore? Because it tells you everything that was happened before, correct? So if it talks about people being weak, talks about people being healed, people being forgiven, elders coming alongside, notice the focus is going to change. We're going to solve from self. We're going to go to one another. Because we need to be whole. We need to be rescued. We need to be restored. We need to be awakened from our sleep and our weakness and our faith that has consumed us that we just can't tell where one step should be taken next. He says, therefore, confess your sins not only to, the, but to one another. And the word one another means another believer like yourself. It's the same term that Jesus says, I'm going to send the comforter to you and I'm going to send another one like myself. So you're not looking just for somebody who's breathing. It's not putting a mirror to their nostrils. And if the mirror fogs up, oh, wow, there's somebody I can talk to. But to someone who is a believer, who loves you, who you trust. 
for one another. You see how this healing of the ministry of the word, the ministry of prayer, the, the work and the, the um, ministry of the session of the church has not only for you, but now that you are useful to the rest of the congregation as well. That you may be healed from your suffering, from the weakness of your faith, from being so tired and weeping and crying, from physical maladies, from being persecuted, from tormenting yourself, from feeling like God has disowned you and is far away from you. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and is working. Great power, great strength, not in the righteous person, but the act of prayer and the object of prayer and making sure where that object of prayer goes, that's where the strength and the power lies. Prayer points us to a God who can do anything that will not violate, be careful, will not violate his nature. But God can do anything. He says this, and what does he do? He says, he gives an example of Elijah, who was one of the major heroes in the Old Testament. But as he says, Elijah was a man who had homopathias, meaning he had nature like us. He had passions like us like ours, and he prayed fervently and that it might not rain for three and a half years, and it did not rain. And then he prayed again, and God gave the rain, and the earth bore its fruit. It's not that Elijah was powerful, but it was Elijah looking at God and saying, God, this is possible for you to do. And so Elijah, like Job, like Noah, like Abraham, were righteous men, not because they were they were the best and perfect, but because they believed in the one who made them righteous. And who do we believe makes us righteous? Jesus. That's why when we eat and drink this, we point to the one who has given us the ability to be able to knock on heaven's door as many times as we need to in our lives and even more than that. To say, I depend upon you and Lord, if you want to move this mountain, move it. That's the kind of faith, the faith like a, a mustard seed, so small, but yet it's powerful, not because of the faith itself, but because of the object of the faith of that mustard seed. That's, that's where this is going. And I want to say something real quick about the oil, anointing of oil. I overlook that. I know I would anoint people with oil, and I'm hoping, and we're pointing, yes, there's lots of things. We anoint them with oil, not on their place of where they hurt or whatever. I know it depends what people, how they apply it. But you pour it on people's head and you pray for them. As a symbol of, of the Lord bringing healing to them. But what anointing of oil means in the scriptures can mean different things. It means consecration. It means refresh. When, con when they consecrated priests, they poured oil over them. 
So they were set apart. Oil was a means of of the vehicle or or a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Oil is, 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 is for medicinal purposes. We see it in Luke where they pour oil and, you know, the Samaritan came and bound him with oil and other stuff to, to, for medicinal purposes. And there are medicinal purposes. But when if I put oil, and it, does, you know, it doesn't mean to be, it has to be 100% extra virgin olive oil. But when I put oil on somebody, I'm not saying this oil is going to heal them. But we're trusting God to heal them. But when we're looking at it in a sense from people being beat up and people who are bruised from the struggles of life and suffering and spiritually sick and we bring anointing to them, it also means that it's protection. It means that your refreshment. He anoints my head with oil, this 23rd Psalm says. Those poor lambs. They were beat up by the sun. The bugs were driving them crazy. The shepherd would anoint their head. Now they dip them. Right? They have a, bo- they have a whole body dip of, because the, those, those creatures that are devouring them and eating them up and killing them during the bug season just can cause havoc with them, could kill them. You know, lay eggs in their eyes and up at their nasal passages and really cause torment. And the, the shepherd cares for them and covers them with oil so that... They are protected and there's healing and there's refreshment. And you know when you feel that oil come on them, the sheep feels the love of the shepherd upon them. And there may be healing and there is refreshment. But it also means that, that there's, there's a term, this term being used means that it's also oiled. Meaning being massaged. Now we're not trying to open a massage parlor. But what we're looking at here is that you must, you know, that when a, a person who's bruised in their faith comes to the elders and they are oiled down by prayer. It's symbolic. Their, their, their arms, they're beat up. They've been, you know, maybe physically beat up. This is like a horse or a gymnast. It's been terms in gymnasts when they've been ready to work out or when they come back. There's been a trainer coming and oil them down after their muscles. And I think it's a beautiful vision of the leadership of the church coming alongside somebody and refreshing them and oiling them up with their prayers and their affections and spiritually refreshing them and trying to get them back restored. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I think so. I think that's a great ministry. But I just don't think it's for sick people. I think it's for all of us when we find ourselves beaten up. It's not just to come forward on a Sunday once a month. But it's a prayer ministry that should preoccupy the session of the church with prayer for people who are struggling. And it's difficult to pray and ask people to pray. It's difficult to confess your sins because you don't trust everybody. And the other thing is that you don't want to show you're weak. We've been fed a lie. To think that Christians don't struggle, aren't depressed, don't have anxiety, can't get it together. It's a lie. And this is what it's all about. It's saying here, we we are beat up people, but we're joyful people. We have a ministry to be restored. And this is closing. This is the rest of this 
the rest of the saying, verse 19 and 20, my brothers, if anyone of you wanders away from the truth, you see how it fits? Where does sickness fit in with Elijah? It has nothing to do with Elijah. But spiritual uh, prayer and restoration and rescue does. A man, powerful. Elijah, powerful. Oh, you, let me show you my God. And then Jezebel's running after me. I'm going to go find a corner to cry in. I haven't bowed my knee. I'm the only one left. Does that sound like a powerful man? That's why he can't be, he's not the example of power, but he's the example of someone who is dependent and is powerful. God is used powerfully, but yet the Lord is needed in his life. He's his only rescue. That's where Psalm 31 says, you are my refuge. And then he says, let him, who know, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is this ongoing ministry of restoring people who are suffering in life, suffering as believers, suffering in the church. We have a ministry as a session, but we have a ministry to each other. And it's all because of Jesus. Because we have access to the Father because of Christ. Are you righteous? Yes, only because of Jesus. He's the only righteous man that ever lived. Perfectly righteous. He fits the bill perfectly. He did everything perfectly. And he's the reason why our prayers are powerful. Because we now have access to the Father as we never had before. And as the book of Romans tells us, we have Jesus interceding for us all the time. So you see how it changes the passage. I hope you see that. I hope it gives you a different perspective of that you're just, you, your tunnel vision has now been opened. And now you have a greater peripheral vision of James chapter 5. Not just about, yes, this is a ministry anointing people with oil, but it's for the church. It's for all of us. So let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you so much for who you are and for what you've accomplished for us on the cross. And we thank you, Father, for the study of this word where we understand again we, that your word, we, we just cannot keep it down. We cannot say that we've got a total handle on anything. That's where the reformers came in and said that we're always reforming. It's not to say that we're always looking for another answer, but we're always open to greater understanding of what your revealed word is. And that our lives continually need to be changed because we have not arrived at total sanctification. So, Lord, we pray that we would again love your bride, the church. Love your organization that you put there. You've put it there for our well-being. You've ordained it for us. You have given us instructions. And to be able to see how this passage opens up ministry of prayer, increases our understanding of prayer, I pray that it does. It has done that to me, Lord, man who is deficient in prayer. I pray, Father, that this inspires us, this moves us, this this arouses us to be more mindful of the ministry of prayer that we have 
for each other and how you have put into the, the, the way of life of the church to protect us. So as we now eat and drink, let us rejoice and be thankful for those of us who love you, for those of us who know you, that these symbols, these bread and this juice, symbolizing the wine, the meal of the Passover, the meal of the Last Supper, all pointing to our fellowship with you. And that we're not alone. We're never alone. The scriptures teach us that when we belong to the church, we belong to a greater family. So as we eat and drink this, Lord, we pray that we would understand the importance of the symbol of this. And that we would desire it as Jesus desired to take it with the disciples. Let us not pass on this occasion to proclaim the gospel of Christ to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.